Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you today. Thank you for being here to worship with us at the Vista. Uh, we are always glad to have you, whether this is your first time with us or you've, uh, you've been here for a long time. Always glad you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning uh, with us. If you have your Bibles today, we're continuing our hop, skip, and jump around the Psalms, our summer series, Summer in the Psalms. Today we're going to be in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, it is not only the longest psalm, it is the longest chapter in all of the Bible. But don't freak out, that doesn't necessarily mean the sermon is going to be the longest sermon you've ever heard. It could be, so don't tempt me, I'm just saying. No. Psalm 119, you can turn there. Before, you get, uh, before we get into the text, we have some exciting news to share with you. Uh, we have hired a new kids pastor here at the Vista. Uh, we have a picture of Katie Schindler and her family. Some of you know Katie. Katie and her family have actually been a part of the Vista for uh, well over a decade now. Um, they, they understand who we are. They've been a part. She has served in kids. She has served in women's ministry and a number of other uh, places in the church. Um, Katie, uh, she is uniquely gifted and qualified for this role. Um, she was a preschool teacher for many years. Then she was an elementary school teacher for many years. She um, she's actually, I think, Belton ISD Teacher of the Year uh, several times. Um, she's kind of a personal note. She uh, had my middle son. She was my middle son's uh, preschool teacher. And then uh, years later, she was my oldest son's fourth grade teacher. And so she did a wonderful job with my two kids. She did not mess my kids up. I may have, but, but she did not. Um, and so we are excited to have Katie. More importantly than all of that, uh, Katie loves Jesus. And she loves uh, kids and she loves this church. And she will do a fantastic job. We are um, unbelievably grateful to have Katie. So if you see Katie, she's going to start. Her first uh, week will be August the 7th is when she will officially start here right before things really kind of pick up for the fall. Um, if you know her, um, let her know how glad you are to, to have her on the team. If you don't and you see Katie around, again, welcome her, welcome her to, our, to our Vista team. Uh, again, we're very, very grateful to have her and excited to get this new, this new semester kicked off. Psalm 119, um, as I mentioned, it is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Um, I am not going to attempt to read the whole thing for you today. You are welcome. We would be here all day, okay? Um, but it is, a, it is a really amazing text of Scripture. There's some things that are really unique about Psalm 119, um, in particular that it's very poetic in the way that it is put together. Um, if you notice in your Bible, each section or stanza, if you will, has a different heading. Um, those are letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so what you have is uh, each, um, each part of the psalm starts with uh, the letter of, a he of the Hebrew alphabet in order and has eight lines. And every line of that particular uh, stanza begins with that corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So, for example, uh, the first, uh, Psalm 119 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are eight lines all starting with that letter. The second uh, section is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and all eight lines start with that. And so it's, it's an acrostic, really, um, and it walks through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in the way that it's put together. And uh, it, ultimately, what Psalm 119 is about is it's about Scripture. It's about God's Word. Um, there are eight different words the psalmist will use to talk about uh, the Word of God. It will say, your word. He refers to your word. He refers to the law. He refers to commandments, uh, statutes, rules, testimonies, precepts, um, all of these different words uh, you're going to hear over and over and over throughout all of Psalm 119. 
and he's talking about the Word of God. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about God's Word. Um, And what I wanted to do, I just kind of picked out a stanza that we'll read together. There's a lot of similarity um, uh, in in a lot of them. So again, I'm not going to try to read the whole thing. I would actually encourage you during the week um, to take some time each day and maybe read a little bit of Psalm 119. Work your way through it this week. It's a beautiful psalm just for the sake of time. I'm going to read... Um, I'm going to read the second stanza. We're going to read the second stanza of Psalm 119. It begins in verse 9. And so here is uh, Psalm 119, kind of the second stanza. And you'll see all of these words pop up that I just mentioned. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. So all of Psalm 119 is about the word of God. And there's a lot of different, you know, important emphasis we could make. We could talk about the importance of reading God's Word. We could talk about the importance of studying God's Word. We could talk about the importance of memorizing God's Word, obviously applying God's Word to our life. And those are all really good things to do, really important things to do. But what the psalmist is really trying to get us to do is to reach a place where we love God's Word where we delight in God's word. On almost every stanza of Psalm 119, this is kind of a theme. The psalmist doesn't just read it. He doesn't just apply it. He doesn't just study it. The psalmist loves the word of God. And and I've mentioned this before, but like all of the stuff we know we should do with God's word, it actually becomes much easier um, if we will start by learning to love the word of God, right? Right? It's much easier to want to go to it and read it and apply it and all of these things if we, can, if we can actually get to a place where we love it and we delight in it. And so the question that we are concerned with this morning is this. How do we learn to love God's Word? How can we get to places where we learn to love God's Word? I thought about this question this week as I was thinking through the message and just some things that, that came to mind. I think if we're, gonna, if we're going to love the Word of God, um, we, we have to understand what it is and, and what it's not, what it is, where it came from, and then how we got it into our hands, okay? If we're going to learn to love it, we need to understand what it is, where it came from, and how we got it. So basically, we need to understand some things about it. I was going to use this analogy from marriage and be like, you know, if you're going to love something, you need to understand it. But then I was like, every guy in here would be like, well, that's not true, right? <laughs> I've been married 23 years. There's a, listen, I love my wife to death. There's a whole lot of stuff I just don't understand. Ladies, you are wonderful and we love you, but you can be very confusing creatures. I'm just saying, okay? Very confusing. So what we're not saying is that to love God's word, you have to like fully grasp and understand every single thing about it um, uh, from beginning to end on every page, right? Uh, again, I, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. I've, I've, I've read the Bible. I went to Bible college and seminary and the whole deal. And, and listen, there's parts of the Bible that are still very difficult to understand. Very difficult to understand. And so it's not, we're not saying that in order to love it, you have to fully grasp and fully understand everything about it. Um, but there are some basic things that we need to know if we're going to learn and grow to love 
this thing called scripture. We need to, we need to, to know some things about it. So let's start with what it is. Um, I think there is um, often the scripture is misused. Um, and I think a lot of it boils down to the fact that we don't, um, uh, and I say we, not like us in this room, but I mean we, like Christianity in general, it, it's kind of missing what Scripture truly is and, and then what it's not. So here's what Scripture is. Scripture is the uh, primary means, it's the primary means through which God speaks to us, He speaks to His people, and reveals Himself to us, okay? So Scripture is the primary way that God speaks to us. Prayer is the primary way we speak to God. Um, But Scripture is primarily how God speaks to us. In addition, it is the primary way through which God reveals who he is, okay? If you want to know who is God, what is God like, what is his character, what are his attributes, um, how does God operate and work and move, you go to Scripture to find that. Scripture is essentially God's uh, self-disclosure to us. What God wants us to know about him we find in the Bible, okay? So that's primarily what Scripture is. But when we fail to understand that that is primarily what it is, we start to try to make the Bible um, something that it's not. So for example, the Bible is not a self-help book, okay? It's not a self-help book. In fact, the Bible is actually a terrible self-help book, right? Because the Bible's going to say, man, you are messed up, you're, and you're broken beyond repair, like you are a sinner, All your ways are wicked and evil. I mean, does that sound like self-help? That sounds very discouraging to me, right? Go read Romans 1 and then tell me that's self-help, right? The Bible is actually a terrible self-help book because uh, at the end of the day, it's not self-help that we need, right? So the Bible's not about me. It's not about you. And we can do a lot of damage when we start to treat the Bible like it's there um, for, for, you know, some specific thing that I, am, that I am dealing with in my life and it's about me and it's written to me. Um, we have to understand that that's not primarily what the Bible is. Now, there's a lot of help in the Bible. There's a lot of instruction. We'll get to some of that in a little bit. But the Bible is not a self-help book. It's actually a terrible self-help book, okay? It's also not a scientific textbook. Some people want to make the Bible, or they want to, they want to write off Scripture and, and, and talk about how it's not valid and you can't trust it, because they'll say stuff like, science has revealed these things since it was written, proving that the Bible is, is not true. Everything from like age of earth to, you know, times when things took place to, I've heard people say stuff like, you know, the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord going to the ends of the earth. Well, clearly the earth is round, it's not flat, so again... There are no ends of the earth. And they'll just kind of see how they do the mental gymnastics to explain away the validity of Scripture. Um, And again, you're trying to make the Bible a scientific textbook to prove all matters of science, and that's not the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is not to prove all matters of science. It's also not a history book. It's not a complete history book. Now, there's history in the Bible. But again, there are major world events that took place that Scripture does not address. And so, again, some people want to quickly write it off and go, well, this big thing, this big battle, this big episode in history took place, and the Bible doesn't even mention it, so how can we trust it? And I want to go, well, it's not meant to be a complete history of the world. It's not written as a history textbook. It is God revealing to us who he is. It is God speaking to us. That is primarily what Scripture is. And we need to understand, if we're going to love it, we need to understand what it is, and we need to make sure... Uh, we know what it is not. Because if not, what happens if we start to think this book is something other than it's originally intended, then what happens when, like, it doesn't work the way we think it's supposed to, right? What if the verse for the day doesn't magically make my day better, right? 
Well, then we put it on a shelf and we don't ever pick it up because it, it didn't work, right? And so we need to understand what the Bible is. We need to understand what it is not. We also need to understand where it, where it came from, where it came from, who wrote, who wrote this book, right? Over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes this. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, okay? And so God worked through, spoke through um, human authors to write the Bible, all right? Um, in fact, the Bible was written over the course of about 1,200 to 1,500 years, all of it, about 1,200 to 1,500 years. It was written by 40 different, there are at least 40 different human authors that, again, God spoke through the Holy Spirit to, to write down what we have. Um, they wrote in three different languages, in Greek, um, I'm sorry, Hebrew, Greek, and then Ar- a little bit in Aramaic. They also wrote from three different continents, from Africa, from Europe, and from Asia. Uh, most of these authors had never met before. They did not know one another. And this is, for me, one of the reasons that I think Scripture, you can, it shows a little bit of the validity of Scripture, is that there is no other literary work that has uh, this many, like, different authors never having met from different continents and different languages that all write with unbelievable unity about a subject, right? The character of God, the nature of God, and specifically the person and work of Christ, okay? And so to me, that's, um, man, that, that speaks to the validity of Scripture. Forty different authors, three different languages, three different continents that they're writing from. Um, in addition, we need to understand how we got this book into our hands. How did we get this book? How did the Bible come to be? Why do we have um, what we have included, included, and, and why is there stuff that is not included? Um, and so to answer that, let me just kind of briefly mention, for some of you, you may already be aware of this, but um, some of you may be new. You may be new to church, new to the Bible, and you don't, you don't understand kind of the makeup of it. And so let me just mention that the Bible is actually not a book. It's a collection of books, right? There are 39 different books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And they are not put together chronologically, okay? So this can be confusing for people. You pick up your Bible, you start to read. Uh, ever try to just read the Bible? Like, I'm going to read Genesis to Revelation. You get bogged down about Leviticus, <laughs> and you're like, I don't know what this is saying, right? Um, part of that is just that the Bible is not put together chronologically. There are some, some places where it's chronological, but by and large, it's not put together chronologically. It's put together like a library, where the books of the Bible are organized by genre of literature. And so in the, in the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible are um, the law. All of the books of the law are put together. Then you have some books of history that are together, primarily the history of the nation of Israel. Then you have what's called the wisdom and poetic literature, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all kind of put right there together. Then at the back of the uh, New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, you have the prophets, all of the prophets they're all kind of back there at the back of the Old Testament. As you get into the New Testament, you have the biographies of the life of Jesus. It's called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the biographies of the life of Jesus. And then in, later in the New Testament, you have the epistles. Those are the letters written to the church, written to churches, okay? And so when you go to Scripture, it's important to understand that it's not, it's not this chronological read like you would do in a normal book. 
It's put together by genre of literature. And again, think of the Bible like a library, like a collection uh, of books. Uh, Chapters were added in the 1200s. And then verses, they added verses in the 1500s just to help with locating uh, different, different places in Scripture. And then when it comes to what is included specifically, there's not a lot of debate about the Old Testament um, the books, the 39 books of the Old Testament, there's not a lot of debate about those. Um, even other religions like Judaism, they would agree with the books of the Old Testament are the books of the Old Testament, right? Um, and then the New Testament, what is in the New Testament canon is, and how it was included, that's where some people, um, there's, some people would say there's debate, there's books that were thrown out or whatever. But what's important to know about the books of the New Testament is it wasn't some like council, some governing council or political organization or, or whatever that like some old guys that all got together and decided these books are in and these books are out. Okay. That, that's not, that's not how it worked. The books that were included in the New Testament canon, um, it was this gradual sort of progression or understanding from the church itself without outside influence that ultimately decided the 27 books that were included in, in the New Testament. And they specifically used four criteria four criteria to decide what what should be included, okay? So really quickly, let me just kind of mention those four criteria to you. The first one's a really big word. I have a hard time saying it myself. It's the word apostolicity. I won't make you say it, right? But apostolicity, okay? And what apostolicity means is that it was written by an apostle or it preserved the oral tradition of the apostles, okay? So some random person Um, that had no connection or affiliation with apostles whatsoever, um, couldn't just jot down stuff and get it included in the Bible, right? It had to have proper apostolicity with a connection to the apostles um, directly. The second criteria was orthodoxy. Had to have true doctrine, right belief. Had to have uh, the right um, doctrinal basis, okay? There are some things that were written that were way off, honestly, heresy, um, and and those were not included um, because they didn't have proper orthodoxy. The third thing was antiquity. So antiquity basically is the time frame in which it was written, okay? So if it was going to be included, it had to be written in the apostolic age where authors could have contact with the apostles, okay? Someone couldn't come around hundreds of years later and write something and go, I think this ought to be in the Bible, okay? Um, it had to have proper antiquity. And then finally, the fourth criteria was widespread use by the early church, Okay? It was widespread use by the early church. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't a matter of some old guys sitting there going, these are in, these are out. Let's kick these out. No, it was the church, uh, different places. Again, um, unbelievable unity in the 27 books that were included and then those that would not be included. It was essentially them going, what books have we already been using as as, um, God's word um, and what have we not? And that is essentially how the 27 books came to be, all right? If we're going to learn to love the Word of God, we've got to understand some basic things about it, what it is and what it's not, so that we don't misuse it or set it up for failure. We've got to understand where it came from, written by God through the Holy Spirit, directing it to to human authors, and then how we got it into our hands. And the last thing I'll say about getting it into our hands is this, that a lot of people sacrificed their lives so that you and I could have this book in our hands, right? From the Reformation to printing it into English, German, and other languages so that the common person could actually read it and understand it. Um, There were hundreds and hundreds of people that were killed so that you and I could have a copy 
of the word of God, right? And I think that's something that I know I, for one, have, um, it's kind of just a weighty thought for me sometimes. That I'm like, man, I, I get to read God's word because some people sacrifice their life so that I could have it, right? The next thing, if we're going to learn to love the, God, the word of God, we need to understand how it is profitable or useful for us. How is this thing helpful for my life? Like, if you don't see the Bible as useful, helpful for you, again, we're probably going to put it on a shelf and never pick it up, right? If we see it as this old, ancient, outdated book that means nothing to me, then I'm probably not going to want to, want to read it a whole lot. And so how is it profitable for us? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Here we go. Profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof or rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So 2 Timothy 3.16 gives us um, at least four of the ways that scripture is profitable, right? For teaching, we can certainly learn a great deal from the word of God. It's for rebuke. This is the uncomfortable part of the word of God, right? This is the part we don't like because, let's be honest, we don't like to ever be told that we're wrong. Most of us, including myself, we kind of live by the I'm right, everybody else is wrong, right, idea, right? That's, that's called human nature. We like to be right, everybody else is wrong. Well, the Bible's going to tell us otherwise, and it can be uncomfortable. But God's rebuke and reproof is something we should run to, not run from, okay? Because it is, in fact, profitable. It's useful. It's helpful for us, Okay. I love the fact then that the next thing he mentions is correction. So it doesn't just leave us at rebuke. It doesn't just point out where we're wrong. It helps correct. It helps correct us. It helps set us back in line with the way God has wired us and designed us to live. There is correction there. It's helpful, profitable for that. And then finally, for training in righteousness. It shows us how to live like Jesus lived. It tells us how to love and how to forgive and how to live with grace. The Bible's going to be profitable for all of these things, right? In addition, there are some other ways the Bible is profitable. We looked at one verse over in Psalm 119, verse 11. We read it a minute ago. The psalmist says this, I, I have stored up, or some versions say hidden, your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you, right? One of the ways the Bible is profitable is it helps us fight temptation and resist sin. You might remember this is, this is how Jesus used Scripture. Jesus was led into the desert. He was tempted by Satan. And how did Jesus respond to Satan? Every time he was tempted, he quoted the word of God. He said, it is written, and he would quote the scriptures. And so one of the ways to resist temptation in our lives is to store up God's word, to know the word of God, right? It's profitable. And then finally, I would say this, the primary way that God's word is profitable to us is that it points us to and reveals the person and work of Jesus, right? Hear me. Ultimately, Scripture, all of Scripture, is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And I would say that if you go to Scripture, if you go to Scripture for all the other stuff and you miss Jesus, you have, you have missed the main point of Scripture. You have missed the forest for the trees. You have missed the big E on the eye chart, Right? You have, because scripture's about Jesus. I can point you to people in the Bible that studied the Bible and knew the Bible and quoted the Bible and memorized the Bible, and they missed Jesus. They missed him. In fact, I'll show you over in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, the gospel of John chapter 5, Jesus is talking, and he's talking to the spiritual leaders, the professional religious guys. 
These guys were better at Bible than any of us, man. These guys, man, they knew the Old Testament law. They could quote the Old Testament. They, could, they, they, they patterned their life. They, they really tried to walk in accordance with all of the law. And they were like professional religious people. And look what Jesus says to them in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he's telling the spiritual good guys, like the, the, the professional religious guys, you guys know the Bible, you study the Bible, you memorize the Bible, you can quote the Bible, great. You don't understand that the Bible you know is all about me and you refuse to come to me. Again, you can read the Bible and you can study it and you can try to apply it, but if you miss the fact that it is about the person and work of Christ, you have missed the main point of scripture. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God that is revealed in the Bible, right? I'll show you one other text just a few pages over at the back of the Gospel of John, just to drive this point home. John chapter 20, the last couple verses of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So that begs the question, all right? Jesus did a lot of other stuff that didn't get written down. So why do we have recorded the things that we have recorded? If Jesus did a bunch of other things, why do we only have recorded some of what he did? Well, the next verse tells us. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have what we have recorded because it's all about knowing Christ. It's all about pointing to Christ. It's about having life in Christ, okay? So again, the, the primary way that the Bible is profitable to us and for us is that it reveals to us the Savior. It reveals to us the person and work of Jesus. Don't miss Jesus in the text, right? Don't miss Jesus in the text. The final thing that I wanted to say, and I'll, I'll be done with this, is if we're going to learn to love the Word of God, then quite simply put, we, we just need to spend time in it, man. We need to spend time with it. You need to spend time in and with the Word of God. You, you don't learn to love something by avoiding it, right? It's impossible. to You just don't learn to love something by avoiding it. And so we've got to get to places where we actually spend some time in and with the Word of God. And I know that we're all busy, and we all have a lot of reasons why we just can't or we don't, time, whatever. But this is the biggest thing, I think, for the church, is that we've got to be people that, that get into the Word of God and learn to love the Word of God. I, uh, a few of our, our members, um, some guys that are in the Friday morning Bible study uh, with me, they, uh, about a month ago, they, they sent me a link to a study they had, been, um, they had heard about. It's about a two-minute clip, and um, I thought just as I was preparing for the message this week, I went back and re-listened to this, to this clip, and it was really intriguing. Uh, a study was done um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, the organization, uh, the Center for Biblical Engagement. It was the Center for Biblical Engagement. They did a, a study. Um, they, sur they, they surveyed like 40,000 people, um, general population, all different ages. I think they said age 8 to 80, like all over the map. And they were trying to discern some things about people's um, engagement with Scripture or, or even lack of engagement with Scripture and kind of what it would reveal. And what they discovered wasn't even the, big, the whole point behind the study, but it, it came to be like the big, the big reveal. And that was this, that when people were in the Word of God one time a week, so 
that can be the Sunday sermon. We just, we just read, the word, we were just in the word of God. We just read uh, from the scripture. So one time a week, there was literally negligible effect in their day-to-day life, okay? There wasn't a big difference in their, their day-to-day life. And even two times a week, when they cracked open the Bible and read two times a week, there was the same thing, just negligible effect in their day-to-day life. At three times a week, there was like a blip on the radar, right? At three times a week, there was like a, a heartbeat, if you will, but, but not a lasting sort of sustaining thing, but there was at least some movement, okay? At four times a week in the Word of God, man, all the statistical analysis like shot up like crazy. That's when you began to see some major differences being made. And there was all kinds of stuff they went through about percentages and and whatnot. I'll try to give you a few of them. Um, Things like um, anxiety and loneliness and depression all went down like 40% in people's lives when they were in the word of God up up to four times a week. Um, things like anger and bitterness in, in relationships, same thing, went down like 40% in people's lives. Um, uh, things like feeling distant from God. Anybody ever feel like that? You feel, I just feel distant. I've had people tell me that as like, man, I just feel, I feel distant from God. Feelings of, feelings of distance from the Lord um, went down 60% when you're in the Bible, you're in God's word, like at least four times a week. Struggling with sin, things like lust, viewing pornography, these kind of things all went down as well, like 60% when you're in God's word regularly and consistently up to four times a week. There were some positive things also about the study, like sharing your faith with other people and and discipling other people. Those things shot up like 200% among people that were in the word of God. It's like when you're in God's word, you become more familiar with it and you're more confident and more comfortable sharing, sharing it. And so... I could go on and on. There was a lot of different statistical analysis in the study, but the big idea was that among God's people, when we are consistently and regularly cracking open God's word and getting into it and reading it, then it makes a huge difference in the way we live our life day to day. And there's been numerous studies that increasingly show in our culture that many Christians' lives don't look that much different than non-Christians' lives which is a sad truth, it really is. But I think a lot of it probably could be tied back to the amount of time we actually spend in the word of God. And so this may be the most pastoral thing, you know, obvious pastoral thing you'll hear me say, but guys, we, we, gotta, be, we gotta be getting in the Bible. We gotta be getting into the word of God. And our goal is not just to read it. It's not just to, you know, study it. It's not just to memorize it. it it's not even just to apply it. The goal the psalmist is trying to get us to do trying to get us to places where we love it and we delight in it, right? That's the goal, to love and delight in the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful today for your word, the fact that you give us your word and you have revealed yourself, who you are, your character, your nature to us in your word. God, we're grateful today that you continue to speak to us through your word, that you communicate Um, God, things that we need in our lives, for our lives, for our joy. And God, you primarily communicate that through your word. God, we're grateful today for the faithful men and women that have gone before, that have sacrificed literally their lives to get this book in our hands. And so God, I pray today that you would help develop in us a love for your word. God, that we would see it as a joy and a privilege that we get to, to get into it and read it 
God, that we wouldn't see it as, um, God, a chore, something that we have to do or you'll be mad at us or anything like that. But God, we would get to a place where our heart is like the heart of the psalmist, where we can love it and delight in it. That is our prayer. And God, I pray that we would see the person and work of Jesus who went to a cross and died on the cross in our place for our sin, that we would learn to pattern our lives after Jesus as revealed in your word. God, this is our prayer. This is our prayer. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.